electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. All right, good evening here, good afternoon out west, and welcome to this uh, slightly condensed edition of Last Call. We begin tonight with breaking news on a rather X-rated Elon Musk. His fiery remarks coming a short time ago at the New York Times Dealbook Conference, and it's with a storm of controversy around him. X and suspected hate speech on the platform. That issue, over which Musk, by the way, is suing an organization called Media Matters, has led some advertisers to pause on the platform. Disney was one of the big ones. And so Musk responded to a question about that and responded to Disney CEO Bob Iger in particular with this. Don't advertise. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go yourself. But go yourself. Is that clear? I hope it is. Hey, Bob, if you're in the audience. Now, it was bleeped out, but you're you're probably smart enough to understand what Musk said there. It's even more feisty because, as he kind of indicated at the end, Bob Iger spoke at the conference earlier. Maybe he was in the audience. Musk is fired up because he claims the advertising pause could drive X out of business, a business he paid $44 billion for. What this advertising boycott is, uh, is, is going to do, it's, it's going to kill the company. And you think that the company... And the whole world will know that those advertisers killed the company, and we will document it in great detail. Now, Musk also added that his recent trip to Israel was, quote, not an apology tour over the controversy and said that it was planned well before the controversial comments that he made that some viewed as anti-Semitic. But the billionaire did concede that his post, which, again, was viewed as anti-Semitic by some, was a, quote, giant mistake. I'm sorry for that that tweet or post. It was foolish of me. Of the 30,000, it might be literally the worst and dumbest post that I've ever done. Um, And I tried my best to clarify uh, six ways to Sunday. Um, But, you know, at least uh, I think over time it will be obvious that, in fact, far from being... uh, anti-Semitic, I'm in fact philo-Semitic. Um, and my, all the evidence uh, in my track record uh, would support that. All right, just a part, a long interview, great interview by Andrew Ross Sorkin. And if you missed it, we get it, right? You have jobs and families and everything else. So we're going to try to make it as much sense as possible if you did not see it. And there is obviously a lot to unpack here. It's a good thing we're talking to several people that have not only covered Musk extensively, but of course all were glued to their sets or radios to listen to that interview. <laughs> For reaction on that interview, let's bring in CNBC's Julia Borston, the first president of NBC Cable, founder of this fine network, CNBC, and currently editor-at-large at Newsweek, Tom Rogers, contributing editor at Vanity Fair, CNBC contributor, one of the best authors in the world, Bethany McLean, don't laugh, I meant it, and Wall Street Journal tech reporter and CNBC contributor, Tim Higgins, who, by the way, is also the author of that, Power Play, Tesla, Elon Musk, and the Bet of the century. The only person missing for this might be Musk's mom. So we appreciate everybody coming in. 
A um, lot, of, lot of stuff here. Julia, I want to begin with you um, because of that, obviously, vitriol, fiery, F-rated reaction to Bob Iger. Your take? I mean, I just have to point out here that X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, is an advertising-supported business. Those seven brands that you just showed up there, Comcast, CNBC's parent company, is one of them. Disney is another one. Altogether, those companies represented 7% of all of the ad revenue that X brought in so far this year before they started their boycott. I also have to point out that X has already lost 50 of its top 100 advertisers in the year following um, Musk taking over Twitter. This is an ad-supported business, and he's acting as if boycotting a business would be somehow in violation of the law. Advertisers such as Disney can choose to advertise where they find it most effective for their brands and also where they feel like there will be brand safety, which is something that Elon Musk's current CEO, Linda Yaccarino, talked about a lot back when she was running NBC Universal. He brought her in to help her to help grow the ad business and manage the business. And now she's in a very bad position because he's saying he doesn't care what advertisers think. Yeah, but I do wonder, Julia, if he was going after Bob Iger and Disney specifically or if he was going after this concept, because if the again, the, we always know this because this is our job. But for a lot of viewers may not understand that kind of what happened was that this organization called Media Matters uh, basically claimed that they had hate speech next to advertisers content. Musk claims and he's suing over this, that they basically gamed it by creating a bunch of fake accounts. Media Matters denies this. We can let the courts decide whatever it will. But Musk is basically replying to the fact that he thought that if you're going to blackmail me over this one thing or maybe a couple things using real money, that's when you can take a hike. But I think, Brian, uh, if the definition of blackmail is not choosing not to advertise on your platform. Disney is all about family-friendly content. They don't want their content next to be anything that is remotely inappropriate, let alone pro-Nazi content, which is what Media Matters surfaced. So he may take issue with Media Matters, but to describe the action of an advertiser choosing not to advertise as blackmail— that's not what that word, I, I think that's word, word what, what is the reference to the princess bride? That, that word doesn't mean what I think, what you think that word means. I think the definition that he's using is wrong. And I think he's sort of missing the point here that it's not just about Disney. He has a lot of advertisers who don't want to have brand unsafe content and they don't want to hear the CEO of the company dropping F-bombs. Well, Tom Rogers, you, you, you founded this network. You were the CEO of this network. You've been CEO of a lot of stuff. What would what would your response be if, if you were Bob Iger, if you were Tom Rogers now and this happened and, and you were the sort of the, the target of that? What would your response be? Uh, my response would be, look, advertisers have a right to speak. And this is not an issue of whether or not uh, they have an ability to associate their dollars with content that they want to be next to. And I would understand that uh, if there's an objectionable content that they don't want to be near, that uh, they have a right to uh, avoid that. But this is a bigger problem than what is going on in Twitter. The advent of programmatic advertising, 
which is where buyers and sellers meet in the digital world and advertising gets inserted so that people, as they are scrolling through the internet and watching videos, have targeted ads coming at them. There is a huge problem of all kinds of major advertisers having their ads associated with hate and white supremacist content, racist content, and it is something that steps are not being taken by the programmatic uh, exchanges or by the advertisers themselves mm -hmm. to go against this. It's happening all over the place, including Twitter. The notion that he is suing on this advertising industry issue is kind of ridiculous. Well, I'm glad you said, Tom, including Twitter, because the Wall Street Journal, Bethany McLean, just had a thing where they kind of tried to do the same thing. And they found some stuff that was inappropriate for kids you know, Disney ads apparently next to inappropriate content for kids. What I'm trying to get at is it doesn't look like this programmatic, as Tom says, algorithmic issue is just a Twitter slash X issue alone that it may go to Meta. It may go to Instagram. It might go to TikTok. I, d I don't know. All I ever get are ads for Paris Hilton cookware and video games. That's pretty much the only things that I see. What was your take on this entire interview? So I was in the room at Dealbook when Musk started speaking and no one knew what to do because he seemed completely batshit crazy starting off. And people were sort of giggling and you just used not the S word on live not, national TV. Not, not sure where to look, not sure what was happening. But in this interview, he swung between the extremes of crazy and total lucidity. And I hope we can get to his comments about AI because I thought that was incredibly important and wise of him. But I want to go back to what Julia and Tom said too, because I think people who often um, cite freedom of speech as, as their reason for being forget about freedom of response. And that's true. What does that for, mean? That's true for all of us as people and it's true for advertisers, meaning you can say what you want to me, but I don't have to like you. If you I don't have to invite you to my house if I don't like what you say. And Well, you Disney can, was and, engaged in its own fight and, over free speech. It, it, that's what's kind of well, interesting well, about this well, whole there's, thing. Well, there's a you got the whole Florida thing. Yes. Well, there's a moment of hypocrisy there because Iger you said, Iger said, at the, Iger said at the controversy at, at the concert, at the conference that he was uh, Disney was suing to defend its own right to free speech. But then he said at the same time, we're not going to advertise on X anymore because we don't like what Musk says. OK, it's different. It's a government. It's a company. We all have to yeah. figure out where we and draw. they could take their to Tom's point. Take your ad dollars wherever you want. Them. Well, right. That's what I mean. If about, it's not working or you don't like it. That's move. what I mean about freedom of response. Like, yes, Musk can say what he wants, but then you don't have to advertise with him. That's freedom of response. Tim Higgins, you literally wrote a book about Tesla and, and Elon Musk. You, you probably know him as well as anybody on this panel. Um, I don't know if he's bat guano crazy, or at least <laughs> to Bethany's point at the beginning of this thing. Uh, but he was he was fiery. What, you know, it's, it's almost like you think he's trying to sabotage. It's, it's weird because it feels like almost and sometimes there's a little bit of self-sabotage here. He's rich enough to do it, but it's interesting. Well, sometimes he's his own worst enemy, and this would maybe be one of those cases. You know, the Disney thing is kind of interesting. He might be especially uh, prickly or sensitive to that idea because earlier this year, he was pointing to Disney and their continued advertising on the platform as proof, uh, is really the proof that this, the platform was safe. As he was trying to get other advertisers back there, he was saying, hey, look, Disney literally is advertising children's programming on the X platform, hey, this is an endorsement for us. And now Disney's saying, hey, not so much anymore. And that's, you know, he's clearly sensitive to that. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, but I, Tim, I'll say this, you know, people, there's a lot of people that just dislike Elon Musk. They, they just hate him. I mean, that just the reality, he was kind of a hero on the left with the electric car thing and, 
everything else since then. Now I know people literally like, I'm not buying a Tesla. I'm going to sell mine because I can't stand Elon Musk. And I get it. And again, to Bethany's point, freedom of response. Do whatever you want. And people are piling on. They say, well, Twitter's going to go to zero and he's going to lose all his money. Ha ha ha. But my guess is Elon Musk has probably made more on Tesla stock this year than he will lose even if X goes to zero. You know, the question is, how much does he want to keep subsidizing it, right? But the other thing is you look on Twitter tonight and there are a lot of people cheering him on. To, to your point, he, we might be talking about how this is bad for business, but and there are certain corners in the world where his kind of uh, bravado is uh, being seen as a positive. He's standing up to these big corporate interests that are trying to impose their uh, woke agenda on them that they don't want. Yeah, that's it. Now, let's move on to this AI issue that Bethany wanted to get on, because Elon Musk also weighed in on artificial intelligence and, of course, the debacle slash drama that recently went on at the company OpenAI, which owns ChatGPT. We'll explain more, but first, take a listen. OpenAI was actually started and it was meant to be open source. Uh, I named it uh, OpenAI uh, after open source. Um, it is, in fact, closed source. Super clo- it should be, it should be na- renamed Super Closed Source for Maximum Profit AI. Um, <laughs> so, because this is what it actually is. It's gone from an open source uh, foundation, a 501c3, to suddenly it's like a $90 billion for-profit corporation with closed source. So I don't know how you go from here to there, but that seems like a, I don't know how you get, I don't know, if, is this legal? <laughs> Bethany, you were, you were particularly intrigued and enthused by those comments. How come? Because I thought he pointed out a really important issue with OpenAI that is getting lost in all this drama over Sam Altman. He also went on to say... Who 99.9% of the population has never heard of. But he also went on to say that he believes that AI is possibly the end of humanity. Elon Musk is very scared by this. And he said, look, whatever happened within OpenAI, he knows Ilya Sutskaya, who played a role in Sam Altman's firing. He said, we need to understand what happened there, because what happened was a really big deal. And if Ilya was involved in it, then he believed in something, and he believed something went wrong. And so now we need to understand what that thing is. And I thought he's one of the few people to be very, very lucid and clear about it. And I was cheering him on. Most people at the conference don't. Wait, wait, wait. At the be- were- you just said he was, he was, he was bat gone oh crazy you. at the beginning of this interview. And then now you're praising him for his that's, lucidity. That's only in the span of less, in the span of about an hour. I know. I was amazed. It's an incredible feat to pull off, right? It's, it's <laughs> a, you can go from crazy to completely intelligent and smart in less than an hour. Just talk maybe, to my maybe, wife. Talk maybe, to my wife. She'll tell you the same thing. Thing. Maybe it's my problem. No, no I, I think it's all the greats. Uh, by the way, if you are tuning in for Shark Tank, hi, we're not Shark Tank. We are last call. We love having you. We're going to be on for a bit, and then we're going to go back to Shark Tank, but we've got to talk more about this, this wild interview. Tom Rogers, do you believe that artificial intelligence, if not controlled or organized or regulated, is, quote, the end of humanity? Uh, If it were the end of humanity, uh, it would uh, be a something that Elon Musk would probably not be the ultimate arbiter of, given his judgment in handling Twitter. And I think this is really what we got to talk about with respect to him when he keeps the technology, when he keeps the issues that are in his uh, Uh, ballpark in terms of uh, being a brilliant engineer and product creator, he's a guy to listen to. When he strays into 
media issues and owning media companies and trying to be an arbiter of how other media companies should handle themselves. He talks nonsense. And when you put those two things together, it's very hard to trust his judgment in terms of uh, foresight on anything, because the latter, I think, very much clouds how much we should listen to him in some respects on the former. But we can't have a discussion like this without also pointing out the fact that the anti-Semitism with him is not a single incident. This has happened and there's a pattern here. And while it may not have been the single thing that uh, uh, caused these advertisers to say, we're done, we don't want to be on the platform anymore, it's clearly uh, running through everybody's head that this guy is capable of doing this again. And anti-Semitism is an enormous issue in the country right now. And he, Twitter and he, is part he, of the, Tom, he did, not he, the solution. And he did. Listen, he said it was stupid and dumb and he apologized and, and talked about his visit to Israel and this. Yeah, but this Twitter is part I, of the problem with anti-Semitism in the country. And saying it's a mistake is one thing. Doing something about Twitter really being part of a solution here is another. When I see that, I'll believe his heart is in the right place. Right now, I don't. Yeah, the, the algorithms, they need to tighten them up to clean up some of that garbage. Completely agree on that. Uh, Tim Higgins, kind of going back to this, I, you know, listen, again, there's so much to unpack around the guy, Elon Musk. But at the same time, he single-handedly built the electric car industry in the United States, okay? He still controls almost the entire industry. We saw the GM news today. Nobody's selling electric cars except for him. He's building rockets that hopefully will do humanity and maybe the U.S. some good. He's trying to solve traffic. He's got Neuralink, which can hopefully help people with, you know, uh, you know neuromuscular issues have a more normal life. He just, there's so, first off, I don't know how he's done all those things. But there, and he's got Starlink. There's so much complexity to him. Do you think he's an anti-Semite? Well, he says he's not. Uh, but one of the things that he clearly uh, seems to be struggling with is some of that emotional intelligence that makes uh, running a media company, uh, becoming a public figure, having kind of a leader uh, is so important, right? He's, he's very good at the hard science, the, the hard engineering. But when it comes to kind of understanding how uh, these social issues play and how his off the off the cuff comments on Twitter when he's supposedly in the bathroom uh, just uh, pontificating and how they can have ramifications. He just continually seems to be surprised um, at the outrage or the misunderstandings that occur. And that uh, is just a continual yeah. thread in his his, his narrative. He, he's too smart to be to be surprised by that. Uh, Julia Borston, um, where did any idea where this this goes? Uh, and do you think that there's a whole the you cover social media, you talk to Snapchat. I get it. All the stuff. Do you think there needs to be kind of a reckoning industry wide? Because I, I find it hard to believe that Twitter X is the only place this kind of garbage shows up. Well, if you're talking about anti-Semitism, I think the reality is that Twitter is, has, has traditionally been designed to be an open town square where people are following things like politics and opinion. And it is designed to really enable people to interact with other people they don't follow. You mentioned Snapchat. Snapchat is much more about communicating with your friends and interacting with your friends. 
I can, t- I can tell you what the challenges are of each of these platforms. Facebook, on the other hand, enables people to form, form groups, which can be a great thing, but it can also enable people to form groups about negative topics. The problem with Twitter is it's designed to have content go viral, very much the same way that TikTok can enable content con- to go viral. And the things that tend to be more incendiary tend to get more attention on these platforms. People like Elon Musk have said, well, we're just an open town square and people are just sharing the same things they would say in the real world um, and the things that are just sort of shared on this digital platform. I would say with the anonymity that's possible on Twitter, people tend to say things that they would not necessarily say to each other, to, the fa- to their faces in yeah. real life. And I think it's a, it's a big challenge going into this next election, thinking about how all of these platforms are going to tamp down, not just on hate speech, but also on misinformation and disinformation, which could have a really massive impact um, on the election cycle. Uh, 100%. Julia, I know you, you got a hop, so we're going we're gonna to let you go on that as well. And, and to that point as well, making sure, and Elon Musk references, guys, that it's, it's not just disinformation from idiots online. It's Governments, too. I mean, let's be clear. I mean, he was making a point that the, we know that certain things that we thought we knew may not have may not, may not have been true. It's a very complicated situation, Bethany. I think, I think listen, not that, honestly, X is small. There's not, I mean, it's big. It punches above its weight. Most of America's not on Twitter. If they are, they've got like eight followers. I get it. We're kind of obsessed with it in the media. Uh, the bigger picture issue is sort of Elon Musk... You write books about some of the most interesting characters in the world in business. Do you think he's ruining any positive legacy he might have had? Well, I, he, 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 this interview was really revealing. And so it was a great. I mean, Andrew I think, did a great and job. I, and I, by the way, thanks to Elon for showing up and doing it. And I'd say to anybody who's curious about Musk, it actually, as we were joking earlier, it's must see TV. But Elon said two things. Did you say Musk see TV? <laughs> he said two, two things that made me really curious. One, he made, a, he made a point at the beginning about saying that he doesn't need to be liked and that he views it as a sign of weakness to need to be liked. But then he went on and said over and, said over, and over again, talked up his accomplishments, including saying that because Tesla had done more than any country, any company in history for environmental progress, that he is CEO has done more than any human being in history for environmental for for the environment, and I thought, well, wow, if you, if you believe is... that electric cars, which d- d- you definitely get a tailpipe benefit, but, right, but, reducing but, fossil fuel use, definitely play a role in cleaning up the air and hopefully fixing. But when you juxtapose <laughs> those comments, I don't need to be liked, but I need to be validated. I thought it was just fascinating insight into his personality, perhaps more so than he meant it to be. Tom Rogers, your final take on on the interview, which was wide ranging and. I mean, it's, it's pretty cool. I think it's pretty cool that uh, a, a CNBC anchor is in the middle of news and we're talking about it on CNBC and everything we thought about 34 years ago when we created this thing was hoping that uh, the center of business news would be CNBC people on CNBC air. So uh, uh, a lot of uh, negativity from uh, Musk, but a lot of positivity for CNBC. How's that for I, I think you just said we don't need to be liked, but we do need to be validated, Tom Rogers. <laughs> Tom Rogers, Tim Higgins, Bethany McLean, Julia Borson out there in the, in the vapor. Thank you all very much. Appreciate it. All right, much more reaction ahead on Elon Musk's Dealbook interview, including some pointed comments about unions and Tesla and the Biden administration and EVs and what he thinks about not being invited to the White House to talk about the industry he basically created. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? 
generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. All right, welcome back to this special edition of Last Call. We are live, by the way, and if you are just joining us, uh, Elon Musk gave a pretty wild, unfiltered interview to Andrew Ross Sorkin at the New York Times Dealbook Conference not that long ago. It ran late, so it kind of pushed everything. That's why we're on live now. Now, Musk made some, well, he said a lot, but he made some pointed comments about a potential UAW union push at Tesla. Now, the UAW today announcing it is looking to organize some 150,000 workers at 13 non-union automakers, Tesla obviously being one of them. Here's what Musk had to say about that. If Tesla gets unionized, it will be because we deserve it and we failed in some way. Um, but we, we, we certainly try hard to you know, ensure the prosperity of everyone. We give everyone stock options. Um, we've, we've made many people who are just working the line, who didn't even know what stocks were, we've made them millionaires. All right, let's get to all this with our panel and bring in CNBC's Phil LeBeau. We got GLJ research founder and CEO Gordon Johnson and the executive editor at Auto Trader, Brian Moody. Phil, uh, I know it's been a long day. We appreciate you staying late, my man. Uh, give us your, your sort of wrap up on what you heard Musk say with regard to cars, EVs and unions. Uh, the union comments didn't surprise me. Pretty standard for what we've heard from Elon Musk in the past. Uh, and as somebody who has covered when the UAW has tried to organize at non-union shops, it's not a slam dunk that it will happen, Brian. A lot of things have to happen in order for the UAW to ultimately say, okay, we're representing these workers. Most importantly, the workers have to vote for it. And the track record over the last 20, 25 years has been that at most non-union shops, when there has been a vote about organizing, it's been shot down. Now, that doesn't mean that's going to happen now. The UAW has a lot of things going in their favor. Uh, That contract or the contracts that they got with the big three will certainly turn the heads of a lot of auto workers, including those at Tesla, most notably out in Fremont, California. But having said that, uh, nothing that Elon said about unions, you know, raised an eyebrow or made me say, oh, wow, this is this is really interesting. You know, it's pretty standard. He believes that they've given people options, stock options. And look, they don't pay as well as the big three shops, uh, but the big three are not giving out stock options. And he is correct that some workers who joined Tesla early on have done very well. Yeah, talking about the stock issue, and that that is an important part of, and I think what differentiates, Phil, 
Tesla from every other non-union shop out there, if you're Hyundai or Mercedes or, or whatever it might be, right. the stock of Tesla is never reflected in some of the UAW numbers when they talk about income, is it? Correct. But we don't know you're, if all you're Tesla 100% workers right have the stock either, right? Some are probably millionaires. Some may not. I don't know. I, look, if you've been hired in the last year or so, are, are you rolling in, in enough cash that you can say, I'm quitting tomorrow? Probably not. Uh, but if you were fortunate enough to be hired at Tesla, I don't know, let's say in 2012, 2013, uh, you're probably very happy with the way the company has progressed over the last decade. Um, so you're right about that, Brian. And, and that's not afforded to somebody who's working at the Nissan plant uh, down in Alabama or Mississippi, excuse me, uh, or, or at the, the BMW plant in South Carolina. Though that, that's a, yeah. a completely different beast in terms of how those are set up. OK, we're going to keep the panel going. Gordon and Brian will get you in just one second. But I want to bring this in first because Musk also took aim at the Biden administration, which had an EV summit a few months ago. And even though it was viewed as an EV summit and Tesla pretty much is almost the entire EV market, Musk was not invited doing nothing to provoke the Biden administration, they held an electric vehicle summit at the White House and specifically refused to let Tesla attend. This was in the first six months of the administration. Um, and we inquired, we're like, we literally make more electric cars than everyone else combined. Why are we not allowed? Why are you only letting UA, uh, Ford, GM, Chrysler, and UAW, and you're specifically disallowing us from the EV summit at the White House? We had done nothing to provoke them. Um, then uh, Biden went on to add insult to injury um, and publicly said that GM was leading the electric car revolution. This was in the same quarter that Tesla made 300,000 electric cars and GM made 26. Does that seem fair to you? Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So Brainstorm got too big. Summarize with AI in a click. Writer's block. Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. All right, uh, Gordon, obviously you're known as being critical of Tesla stock, but a lot of people may not realize you are the son of an automobile executive. I think your dad worked at GM or one of the big three in Detroit. So you grew up in and around the auto industry. Would you describe this as just pure politicking by, by the White House? I mean, really, is, I can't believe Musk is that surprised he did not get invited being a non-union shop. Right. I, I don't think it's politicking. I think it has to do with him being a non-union shop. But I also think it has to do with Elon Musk's history of skirting the law and kind of, you know, um, sticking his middle finger up, if you will, at the law. And what I mean by that is, you know, the funding secured uh, tweet he did way back when, when the SEC fined him $20 million, which his pocket went to him. Um, you know, the recent uh, Neuralink trials where the Wired article suggests where Elon Musk said no monkeys were harmed. That Wired article suggests there was significant harm of monkeys filing a 13G instead of a 13D uh, with respect to Twitter. The point is, he has such a large reach um, and there's so many people focused on him. I think there's a negative feedback loop when he kind of, you know, um, uh, you know, skirts the law and then flaunts it on Twitter. And I think it has a corrosive kind of overall impact on society. So I think the, the, the combination of him not being a union shop 
as well as him skirting many laws yeah. and then, you know, basically kind of uh, touting him his, himself doing that, I think is why he wasn't invited there. And I also think that if you think about it, right, over the past month, Panasonic, LG, Ford, VW, um, 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 and, and clearly GM have significantly scaled back their plans for EVs. And just today, GM told you they're going to do a one, $11 billion of free cash flow this year. That's a 25% free cash flow yield. When Tesla's only going to be do $7 billion of free yeah. cash flow, that's that's a 1% free cash flow yield. So they're killing it despite not selling they're EVs. Killing so it. They're killing it. The GM is printing money and Ford is printing money not because of the Bolt, but because of the F-150 and the GMC Denali. I mean, the Yukon is probably a $30,000 profit vehicle, while the Mustang Mach-E, I know I'm conflating my car makers, loses $30,000. I want to focus a little bit more, too, on that, Brian, in the news of the day, because, listen, I realize a lot of our viewers and listeners may not have seen the interview. All right, go back on CNBC.com or DealBook's website or wherever it is and check it out. But I want to focus also on the news of the day, and that is what Brian Gordon just mentioned, which is GM effectively, uh, I don't want to call, I don't know if it's like they, they pulled back on the EV goals, whatever, but they raised their dividend, they did a buyback, the stock surged. But I wonder, Brian, if the stock surged more today, not because of the buyback, but simply because they, they kind of admitted that maybe we should spend less money on EVs because guess what? The American customer does not seem to want them. Yeah, it makes sense that they would say that because remember, Ford said they were kind of pumping the brakes on electric cars too. The way to look at it is that electric cars offer consumers more choice. So there are enough buyers for electric cars, but maybe not quite at the pace that we've been at. A lot of the early adopters have been used up. So we want to offer vehicles to a wide range of people. And when there's more choices for consumers, then consumers win. And they're not investing all of that capital in developing a car that maybe they can't sell as rapidly as they would have hoped. Do you? Yeah. And GM has been, Brian, more all in on this on this topic. And yes. people come after me because I'm critical of EVs. I've, I've, I've driven many. I've owned one. I, I, I know a lot about them. Right. And I also know their 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 strengths and their weaknesses and GM being a little more all-in than Ford, say, which has adopted a little more of a hybrid strategy, kind of going not quite as far as Toyota. I, right. wonder, I wonder if GM is also realizing, oh, my gosh, we gonna, we're going to need to offer all kinds of cars because when that buyer comes in and wants the EV or wants the hybrid or wants the, the gas-powered engine, we need to have a car to sell to each of them. Yes. You don't want them to go someplace else. And to be perfectly honest – a lot of these vehicles, if the buyer isn't there, listen, the, the secret to electric cars is, seems pretty simple. Make them better than everything else. Better reliability, better value, lower price, easier options for charging. It's not that hard. Just make it better. And there are none of those better, things you just referenced. They, the Consumer Reports have said they have, they have more problems, they're more expensive, and it's hard to charge. I think that's you're, you're exactly right, yeah. Brian. It's not, there's no secret sauce here. Just make a great car right. that goes a long way, that's easy to charge, looks good, and provides people comfort. Right. Phil, can you clarify the language yeah. for us? Because I don't, you know, is this, a, is this a pullback from GM? Is this a clarification? Is it a narrowing? How do we read the GM language today? Yeah, two, two things I would say about the news from GM today. First of all, nothing has really changed in terms of with EVs relative to what they said about a month ago when they said, look, we're going we're gonna to defer about $1.5 in our EV investments, push that out 
in terms of, let's say, when this, when we start building the Equinox. So that hasn't changed. That's been about a month old. It was just amplified today when they gave their new guidance. And that's clear. They realize that the growth rate for EVs is slowing down. Therefore, they need to be more judicious about how much capital they're putting into EV development, et cetera. They also admitted they need to do a better job. They have they have fumbled when it comes to EV manufacturing. The Altium battery cell is not coming online as quickly as it should. Mary Barr told us that this morning when we interviewed her. The second point is this, Brian. I don't think the stock popped because people think GM has seen the light and is not going to build EVs. The stock popped today because General Motors said, we're taking $10 billion and we're doing an accelerated stock repurchasing program, which is not usually how stock repurchasing programs go. The ASR means they went to a, a, a bank on Wall Street and they said, here's the money. Take these shares off the street quickly. And that's what's happening. And as a result, you will see 17% of the available shares of GM gone quickly. And that made everybody say, okay, let's push these shares higher. Yeah. Because obviously you were getting greater bang for your buck if you were a shareholder. It was, it was a vi- Gordon, you're the stock guy. It was a very unusual move by GM. We see buybacks all the time, okay? We see buybacks happen, and then you buy back the stock over the quarter or the year, and maybe you do, maybe you don't. You're under no legal obligation. To Phil's point, GM basically said we were going to buy them now all at once. I was listening to Fast Money at the very beginning of it. They were able to talk about this, and Karen Feinerman was kind of like, this is a little bit not sketchy, but unusual. What's your take on that move? Yeah, so I think there's three key things here. Number one, I think the free cash flow that they guided to – They're basically telling the world, by selling ICE cars and hybrids, we're minting money, right? That's number one. Number two, if you look at Tesla's gross margins, right, from 1Q of last year to 3Q of this year, they went from 17.6% to roughly 7.6%. I'm sorry, that's their EBIT margin. Tesla's EBIT margins are now below, below GM, um, uh, uh, BMW, Stellantis, um, uh, Toyota. Um, and, um, 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 and Mercedes. So the point is, what you're seeing now is the people who are doing EVs are seeing a significant deterioration in their fundamentals. And one last thing, Business Insider recently wrote an article, published, I'm look at my notes here, um, October 18th. Um, it was an analysis done by Yahoo Finance and global market research firm, firm Ipsos. 57% of the respondents said they are not likely to choose an EV as their next car. So I think the reaction in GM stock today is due both to both to their their their, their free cash flow generation yeah. and them stepping away from EVs due to it's, a reduced demand. It's so a I man, think it's, this continued focus on EVs. All these companies that I just mentioned before, they're stepping back from, and I think they're going to be rewarded for that. Guys, it, it is it is amazing. We'll leave it there. It is Brian, Phil, and Gordon. It's amazing to watch an industry that's been around forever has built an incredibly profitable model that nobody was really complaining about too much and then completely turn that into a totally different, unprofitable model. And I'm talking about media, but it sounds like EVs too. Guys, (laughs) thanks very much. (laughs) Thank you. Appreciate it. (laughs) Phil's not laughing at that one. Thank you. It is time now for tomorrow's news tonight. Some of the stories you're going to be talking about tomorrow morning, and it could be a big day for what you pay at the gas pump. After a four-day delay, pause, OPEC, Russia, and its other partners will be meeting virtually to talk production levels into next year. There are a number of possible outcomes. We'll try to keep it simple for you. First, 
They could keep, they could agree, keep things basically where they are now, with Saudi Arabia and Russia continuing their 1.3 million barrel per day unilateral output cuts. Number two, those two countries, Saudi Arabia and Russia, could extend into next year. Or three, they could not only extend into next year, but enhance the cuts by adding even more barrels to them. Now, those are just three of the main scenarios that could happen tomorrow. There are other options as well, like the group cannot reach a deal on output levels and all heck breaks loose. That would be the, quote, market share war. Highly unlikely, but it's OPEC. Anything's possible. OPEC could also decide between now and then to delay the meeting again to maybe work out some issues with countries like Nigeria and Angola. As always, it's OPEC. Anything can happen. It's like a bad episode of Falcon's Crest. Let's welcome back our knots landing. I'm aiding, my, aiding myself. Let's bring in RBC Capital Markets, Global Head of Commodity Strategy. You know what Falcon's Crest was? Of course. It was a great soap opera. And I, I tried to opera. reference the lowest brow of those primetime soap operas that I Didn't could. go for Dallas. No, I, that, that was good. I don't think we're there yet with no. OPEC, but I think you and I were talking before this because we, we had to wait till the show kicked yes. off, if you remember that, um, that they need to get a deal done tomorrow. Oh, I think they have well, to. On many, for many reasons. I mean, I think they have to get a deal done because COP28 is starting. UAE is the host of COP28. The question is, do they want to extend OPEC and have OPEC discussions going alongside climate discussions? I don't think so. So I do think there's a lot of pressure to get this done tomorrow. Now, they could punt a part of the conversation about baselines for Angola, Nigeria, two countries that are holding out saying we want mm -hmm. more production. They could potentially punt that issue to later. But I think they want to get some type of headline coming out of that meeting that they got a cut done. Because they've also, what you're and OPEC is very confusing to people that don't yes. follow. It's confusing for me, and I do follow it, not as well as you, because there's a lot of things going on. You've got, on one hand, OPEC plus 2 million barrel a day group cut, right. okay, which they're not doing entirely because some countries can't meet the quota. There's another 1.6 from other countries, and then the Saudi and Russia unilateral cut. So what you're talking about is sort of fixing that, that core OPEC issue. It's fixing the core issue that was basically unresolved from June. They got this mega deal done in June, but there was an asterisk for two countries that said, we want to revisit our production numbers for next year. They were visiting it was them Nigerian and Angola. Nigerian and Angola, the two African producers. By the way, the Angolan president is going to meet with Biden tomorrow. I mean, there's a lot. I mean, <laughs> a whole bunch of other stories going on that we could be covering. But no, this is a very big issue over these baselines. If they can solve that, then they can move on to the bigger show, which is, what do we do about production for next year? Do we go deeper collectively? Does Saudi Arabia and Russia just roll over? Like, what's the formula for the cut that we're going to see tomorrow? But market participants are anticipating a cut. That's why we had a bit of a rally yeah. in oil prices. So if they fail to deliver, expect a sell-off. But, you know, if you're OPEC, you're looking at U.S. demand. You're looking at China demand, which has not come back as hot as, as we think. But you're also looking at production. U.S. production. You're looking at U.S. production, Brazil. which is at or near a record. Ah, you still I was going to see. Obrigado. Obrigado. <laughs> Brazil. Brazil and Guiana, which Guiana is kind of like almost pseudo-U.S. production, given that most of it goes yes. to Exxon and Hess slash... Right soon to be Chevron, um, they're wild cards. Well, another wild card is what do we see on Venezuela with the United States basically mm. pulling off sanctions? Gonna, it's going to take them a while to ramp up, don't you think? Venezuela? I think it will, but it's an interesting question of, like, we front-loaded those sanctions. Can that be sustained depending on their elections? And then Iran is a wild card. Iran has had significant production growth this year, export growth. The question is, do we get some type of snapback on their sanctions? And so if you're OPEC and you have to make a decision on cuts, you're having to gauge what are the other producers going to do next How year? shocked are you, though, because almost all of Wall Street um, 
the people who actually make the price target estimates has been bullish and they've been wrong. It's yeah. been a surprising year. I mean, it's been a year of tremendous. Citigroup's been right. Yeah, Ed Morris. I mean, the great Ed Morris, who's no longer covering the market. But no, City was right. But again, tremendous volatility this year. And the question is, what OPEC does tomorrow, I do think matters tremendously, not just for the next couple of weeks, but what do we see next year? I mean, what do we see in Q1 expected to be soft in terms of demand, in terms of inventory builds? What do we see from the Saudis? Are they prepared to essentially say, we're going to roll over $1 million mm-hmm. or go deeper? Do we need the whole band yeah. together to get this cut down? Well, it's virtual. I'll be talking about it on Squawk Box tomorrow morning, so tune in. I know you're off to the Climate Summit as well soon. Halima Croft, thank you for coming out. Thank, thank you for, for your patience. Thank you for your patience, by the way. Quick programming note. Stick around after last call tomorrow night for the CNBC special. Charlie Munger, A Life of Wit and Wisdom, will look back at the life and times of that investing titan. We're going to say goodbye Shark Tank's on the other side. See you tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.